0: Wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, October 10th, 2014. This week is episode 343, and this is Radio Joe Hughes, and I'm coming to you from the lounge at the Cleveland Airport. I happen to be between flights here. Unfortunate mix-up with U.S. Air today, but we're going to make it happen anyway and uh today the z-man is also flying so he won't be joining us but today's segments include we're going to have an interesting interview today we've got dr richard corsi he'll be joining us shortly we've got a phd candidate in dr corsi's program at the university of texas austin Austin brandon boars calling in from finland and we also have dr eva king calling in to talk a little bit about the iaqa ashray update and also join us for the second half of the interview. Before we get started, let's take 20 seconds to thank our marquee sponsors.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at i.e. connections.com clean facts and cleaning and maintenance management magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at clean dot com and cmm com. we'd like
1: to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors iaq.net and healthy indoors magazine a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers Subscription information is available
2: at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: Okay, to download past shows, go to iaqradio.com. You can stream them direct from our website or follow the link that says Go to Show, or you can download from the iTunes podcast section. We also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, since the Z-Man's out, I'm going to handle today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Jess, we got a little music? <laughs> Okay, you can win some very interesting prizes. Cliff sends out some great stuff. We've got some things at the IAQ Radio Headquarters, too. All you have to do is be the first person to correctly answer today's radio trivia question. Just email your information to C Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at cs.com, or if you're listening live, you can text in via your computer. You may have a shot to win it today. I don't see any of the trivia question experts aren't quite yet. And uh, looks like there was no answer for last week's question, so you can pick up last week's question as well. Today's IAQ Radio trivia question is sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association. They've been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Learn more about them at www.trsca.org. Alright, now for this week's Trivia question. We're going to try again. I think maybe this was last week's. Let's do this again. On the periodic table, what are the symbols for lead and mercury? An easy one. All right. Today's guests are Richard Courcy, and we've also got uh, Dr. Courcy, and, of course, Brandon Bohr and we've got Eva King
3: coming in.
0: Let me get a little background on Dr. Corsi first. I can do this real quick. I think most of our listeners know him by now. He joined us two weeks back now. And also, he's been on a couple times over the last seven years. He is an ECH Antel Professor for Professional Practice, Civil Architectural, and Environmental Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. His Ph.D. is in Civil Engineering from the University of California, Davis, and he joined the faculty at UT of Austin in 1994. He's a well-known researcher on indoor air quality, including sources and control of indoor pollution and human exposure to indoor toxins. This week we brought a little research to practice thing here, and this week we brought one of Dr. Corsi's Ph.D. candidate students on with us. He's actually calling from Finland, Brandon Bohr, who completed his undergraduate studies at York College of Pennsylvania, and that's where he had an opportunity to get he was, uh, was going to work with Andy Pursley. Dr. Pursley has also been on IAQ Radio. You can check out his past show. Just uh, go scroll down and check out Dr. Pursley. He okay. was to work at NIST. That experience sparked his interest in indoor air quality. He began graduate studies at University of Texas, Austin, in 2009. And he's worked with Dr. Corsi and others on various research projects related to human exposure and particle resuspension. He's currently living in Helsinki, Finland, where he spent over a year and a half working with groups at the University of Helsinki and the VTT Technical Research Center of Finland. At halftime, we're also going to have an update, so folks know, with Dr. Eva King with Indoor Biotechnologies and the Indoor Air Quality Association's Board of Directors. We'll talk a little bit about the IAQA ASHRAE merger. All right, let's get the guys on the line here first, Jess. Let's get uh, Dr. Cole. We got some fight music, right, for the UT guys. I see, uh, Doctor are You on the line now?
4: I'm on, Joe.
3: Thanks.
0: Great to have you. And Brandon, we have you back. Hi, I'm here. Great, great. Um, you know, I was I was thinking about you guys last night. I was sitting in a hotel um, restaurant, there bar restaurant, having a uh, little something to eat, and I saw some highlights from last week's football games. Rough week for the, the Longhorns, but uh, I'm sure they'll be back. And uh, they've always got a nice team down there. But, uh, gentlemen, today it's indoor air quality. Let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, Dr. Corsi, we, we talked a little bit about doing this program, you know, um, practice to, you know, research to practice, basically. And I thought we'd start by asking a little bit about what, what type of research your group is working on now that, that we can look forward to talking about in the future.
3: Uh, sure.
4: Sure. Um well our group is um, as opposed to speaking just about my group we have about four faculty members now and we'll soon have a fifth that do research on on indoor air quality and over the past decade or so we probably you know supervise 50 plus graduate students and 30 to 50 undergraduate students and the the general areas that we work within are, um, I would classify as source characterization, understanding sources of indoor air pollution, everything from architectural coatings to flooring materials, uh, mattresses, which Brandon is working on now, Uh, and even we have a a graduate student right now working on better understanding what comes out of people's bodies when they cough. So, you know, a wide range of source characterization, Uh, and then we try to study... As a separate kind of group of research projects, um, the transport of pollution in buildings and the fate of pollutants, everything from how particles deposit on different surfaces to how chemicals adsorb and for how long to different materials. So, for example, um, I just finished a project with some other colleagues um, um, on methamphetamine contamination of buildings. You know, we know, we know that there's at least 10,000 buildings. Uh, that are found to be meth labs in the United States every year. There's probably 10 times that many that are contaminated. So we've been studying methamphetamine contamination of building materials and how to decontaminate them. Um, we also do a lot of research on human exposure to pollution, uh, everything from how air flows around the human body and, and how that affects uh, the amount of pollution we inhale and the kinds of work that, you know, that, Brandon will talk about uh, relates to babies and how inf- you know how infants are exposed to indoor pollution, and of course we do a lot of research on control technologies and strategies, everything from induct control technologies to portable air purifiers to how to best shelter in place. During wildfires and that type of thing, and and even uh, we just finished some research on some really neat little uh, personal air purifiers that you put on your nightstand when you sleep and blow you know clean air over your face as you're sleeping. So we do we do research in all these general categories, and I would say maybe an overlying um, or an underlying um, connection be, between a lot of the research we do is also understanding um, how building energy use affects indoor air quality. How we conserve energy in buildings you know has an impact on indoor air quality, and so we do research in that area too. so that's kind of a long winded answer to a lot of different types of research we do um if you want wanted me to I could expand on specifics there but uh, well, there's a lot there's many, a lot going on
0: I'm curious how many you know how many projects are going on at a time right now? you say you got four to five you will have five professors there uh, teaching and working with students. How many do you have going
5: on at a time?
4: So, there's kind of an ebb and flow in research funding um that's the nature of you know academia um, right now, we probably have a total of oh, between the between all the faculty members um, maybe six or seven projects going on at times we've had as many as fifteen projects going on so it's it's probably in that range six to fifteen at any given time, specific projects that are different from one another, you yeah. know.
0: What's the typical length of time it takes to complete one of these, if, I, if there is such a thing?
4: So, um, you know, the nature of the projects depend a lot on, on who's sponsoring the project. So we get, we get funding from industry. Uh, sometimes companies come to us with specific problems, and we try to help them resolve a problem. Those projects are usually shorter. You know, those projects can be as short as three months. Um, and then we have longer projects that are anywhere from two- to four-year projects. So I'm uh, about to start up a big project on indoor air quality in schools. It'll be a four-year study. Um, so it varies a lot depending upon the nature of the study and who's funding
0: it. Um, That's a cool one, Go ahead, I'm sorry.
4: I was going to say, typically it takes a graduate student uh about 20 months to complete a master's degree, um, and so we like for our projects to be, you know, it's nice for us if we have a project that can su- sustain itself through the entire education of a master's student or a Ph.D. student, and most, P- most Ph.D. students take four to five years to complete.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Uh, what about um, the, the one you mentioned? I'm just curious. The one with the four-year project for schools—is that an EPA-funded study, or is that somebody else funding that? Uh,
4: it will be a federally funded study. I'm not supposed to say too much more at this point because the contract right. is not official. <laughs> <But, but>, yes, <laughs> so you're on the right. You're definitely on the
0: right track okay okay that's my job here doc <laughs> you're, but... you're great at your job <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much and then one more real quick and then i want i want to get over to brandon and his current activities there how do How do people come up with these studies i mean you kind of told hey here's the you gave me the four categories there at the beginning and then um how do you you know kind of like, obviously sometimes someone comes to you with something that they want you to do, but when, when um, you don't have anything like that lined up for someone, what what do they? Uh, how do you direct them into finding the right project for them?
3: Yeah, so
4: you know some federally funded research opportunities, especially the National Science Foundation, is sort of wide open. So if you have a good idea, or you think you have a good idea, uh, then you write a proposal to the National Science Foundation, and it's. Extremely competitive. I think the success rate now is maybe five percent on a proposal, something like that. So it's long shot whenever you submit a proposal there. But that is a major source of funding for us and for others in the field. We write a lot of proposals to National Science Foundation. That is wide open. So they they're not saying we want you to work on this project. And for those kinds of proposals, um, you know, the faculty members, oftentimes with PhD students, will put their heads together and say we think this is a really ni- nice idea. It's original. Nobody else has done it. It's significant. It can it can have a lot of significance in practice. Let's go after this. Let's submit this and see what happens. So that's the really wide-open one. Um, the U.S. EPA, ASHRAE, you know, is a sort of industrial consortium. Uh, they tend to be more focused on what they are looking for, um, and, but there's oftentimes still some flexibility there. So there might be an interest in indoor ozone chemistry, but it's broad enough that you can sort of decide what aspect of that you want to, you know, try to address. And so that we come up with the ideas for that aspect. Sometimes students come to us, and Brandon is one of those, you know, who are really successful and they go out and they get their own money. So they get National Science Foundation fellowships, or they get EPA star fellowships, or they get other kinds of funding. When students come to us with their own funding, we have a great deal of flexibility and normally the student, has an idea of the, of the type of thing that they're interested in. Maybe not the specific research project, but they say, I'm interested in studying volatilization of chemicals from drinking water to indoor air or something like that. And so we help those, the students when they come with their own funding to sort of refine their research into something that's doable and of uh, significance and, and, and its original. So, you know, Brandon is a great example of one of those types of students. He's come to us and said, I have money and uh, I'd like to work in this area. And so his Ph.D. advisors have been working with him to to uh, to help him in the area that he wants to do research in.
0: That's a great problem to have. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I've got money, and I know, uh, and this is the area. And now let's bring Brandon on. Um, Brandon, we we talked a little in your introduction about you know how your interest started. First, thanks for joining us. Thank Uh, you for having me. uh, Our pleasure. And um, now, when we talked about that, you you had done some work with um, Arthur Persley um, earlier in your your studies, and then um, that got your interest peaked in the indoor air quality world. I noticed that a lot of your, stu- your studies and your research are, are, are kind of a lot of mattresses and sleeping and, and, and you know, exposures during sleep. And, and what piqued your interest in that?
5: Uh, so I guess my first semester at Texas, I was in Dr. Corsi's exposure course where we talked about exposure to indoor air pollutants and how to characterize these exposures. And I think we had a... Discussing possible class projects. And one of the things he mentioned was uh, looking at flame retardant emissions from mattresses and exposures to different pollutants that are released from mattresses. And I think he talked about that there really wasn't much research on this topic. Uh, so I think that really sparked my I- original interest in this. And then I looked more into it. And I think as you realize how much time you spend sleeping, a third of your life, eight hours a day, if you can get enough time to sleep, and infants spending even more time at sleep, uh, kind of understanding what we're exposed to as we sleep is important. And there's really not been that much research done on in this area. So, uh, yeah. Well, that kind of anticipates my second question, Brandon. What,
0: I mean, how much research has that? I'm sure you have to do you know, a background um, search and check and see. How much research there has been? Do you find much? Have you found you know maybe ten or fifteen papers at least to look at, or maybe fifty?
5: Is it you know where where are we right now? Well, there's been a quite a bit of research, maybe hundreds of studies on characterizing what is in mattress dust, and there's a lot of interest in understanding the allergens and microbial content of mattress dust. Uh, so there's a lot of research there, but there's very little in Understanding how that dust uh, gets stirred up or resuspends from the mattress or the bedding and becomes airborne. And at that point, we can be exposed to those dust particles. Uh, so there's a lot on what's in the dust. Um, for the mattress emissions of these VOCs, there's been uh, very little studies on that. Um, there is one big study on flame retardants in baby products, including crib mattresses. That was published a few years ago. Um, by Heather Stapleton's group at Duke University, um, but aside from that, very little. Um, there's some research on the thermal comfort of the sleep microenvironment. There's a lot of interest in that, um, but that doesn't really address the exposure and the pollutant transport dynamics that we're interested in. I see, and what is? I mean,
0: from your your background, looking into this, what is the biggest? Um, oh can, you know what's what's the biggest part of that load in in a mattress in a typical mattress and oh no, sorry what is the biggest um what is the biggest constituent within the within a mattress out of that dust that's in a mattress what's most of it from you know is it all we we would assume most of it's skin cells or a lot of skin cells is there something that you know can you give me some idea of how much of it is what
5: oh uh, yes yeah, so the- there's a lot of skin cells, skin flakes, because we said shed, shed so much skin as we sleep. Then um, there's, of course, a lot of these allergens, dust mite allergens. Uh, you have all these dust mites that uh, like to live in your mattresses and your pillows. And as they die, and decompose, you may be exposed to their body parts or their fecal matter that are very small particles. Um, and because of the nature of the sleep environment, the elevated temperatures and, and moisture levels, Uh, There's possibility of some fungi in the mattress dust or the mattress itself. Um, And then, of course, bacteria, uh, primarily of human origin that comes from us. Um, And if you have a pet in bed, you may have their associated allergens and bacteria. Um, If you have these crib mattresses that can can contain flame retardants and and other chemical additives, uh, these chemicals may accumulate in the dust. So that's important, um, and if you think of your comforter or the like, the top blanket on your mattress, that can um, you can have particles originate elsewhere in the home or outdoors that just settle onto that uh, surface over time. Okay, and
0: now um, with respect to these uh, all these different um, types of you know, pollutants, I guess you could call them that, that you find within within mattresses. Um, is there a big difference? Well, let me ask you this. This is something I always want to try and get, you know, kind of drilled down to with respect to how we take this and, and make practical decisions in the field. Has there been much, much research on, on cleaning that? And, and if, say, for instance, vacuuming or HEPA vacuuming or the good old fashioned way grandma took it outside and
5: beat it with a <laughs> baseball bat, you know, is there any good research on that? <laughs> Uh, Yes, there's there's research on uh, routine vacuuming of mattresses and how it affects the concentrations of allergens in in the mattress dust, and I think that's been proven to be quite effective. Uh, So, of course, if you try to minimize the amount of dust on a surface, then you can help minimize the amount that comes off and the amount that we would be exposed to. So, of course, daily or I would say weekly or Biweekly vacuuming of your mattress or your pillow is, of course, a good thing. And frequent cleaning of your bed sheets, your pillow covers, and
2: I think for many of us
5: that's pretty common. But for many others, uh, maybe they do that once every several weeks or once a month. So uh, I think general general bedroom cleanliness and hygiene is important. Um, I, yeah. You know, I think
0: it's important you bring that up because I, I know now with the, the trend toward, um you know, trying to use less energy, a lot of people think, and trying to get these net zero homes, people think, well, you've got to have uh windmills and you've got to have solar power and all that. But the first thing you have to do is reduce the amount of energy you use. And I think you make an important point in that when you're trying to lower your exposure while you're sleeping, the first thing you should try and do is... Not let it build up so much. I guess so. That's that's. I think that's a good practical point for for listeners and, and for people like. I'm trying to get with these interviews, Brandon. That you know, what do we call an IEP, an indoor environmental professional? What do we call a remediation guy? You know, and it seems that would be one of the very first things you'd tell people is, look, you know, the first thing you do is you you keep the levels down by doing X, Y, and Z. And it sounds to me like you you've hit on quite a few of the key points there I appreciate that uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the one I have up in front of me now it's the characterizing particle resuspension from mattresses and and this was a chamber study can you oh, yes just tell the listeners a little bit of a give them a little bit of an overview of what you find or maybe start out with how you did the the study you know what why you chose to do a chamber study as opposed to trying to do something in the field which I assume would be really difficult
5: yeah sure well I uh... First, the study was done uh, with me and another visiting Ph.D. student, Mikael Stilak, and he was coming from a university in Denmark in the Danish Building Research Institute. And we worked together on, I would say, like two studies resulting in two journal papers related to this mattress dust resuspension. Um, I think the reason why we chose the chamber studies is because we have much more control over the environment. Um, we can reduce the background particle concentrations to very low levels. Um, it allows for very good repeatability. And, uh, we had this whole setup of this chamber at at the university of Texas, um, in the lab and it worked out quite nice. Uh, but what we did is we had a twin size mattress, just a typical mattress that that you can purchase from the store. Um, we wrapped this mattress in in bed sheets, in this case, two layers of uh, bed sheets. Um, we generated an artificial deposit of dust using test dust, and this test dust has, like, a known size distribution, and it's easily generated. Um, it's commonly used in these resuspension studies, uh, typically for resuspension from flooring as people walk. Um, so it's, it's very useful for us. Um, and then we placed this mattress in the center of the chamber, it's a 15-cubic-meter chamber, so a small room. Um, and then we had, um, different participants come into the chamber. They were wearing a clean suit with uh, a hood and booties and a filter mask and gloves. Um, the reason being is that we want to make sure that particles are not coming from them. For example, uh, from their clothing or if they happen to cough or sneeze. Um, and then they would go into the chamber and do these different movements on the mattress. We had, a set of five different movements, um, of different intensities. So, for example, the first movement was just sitting on the mattress, and the second movement was just laying on their back, and they would do a full three hundred and sixty rotation in their body. So, we'd have them do these different movements of different intensities, and we could look at how these different movements would affect how many particles come off. Um, um, and now, this cutting book. Sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, these, these movements lasted for about 12 and a half minutes and then they would exit the chamber and we monitor the, the decay in particle concentrations. So is somewhat simulated what might happen if, if they moved in bed for a little bit and then fell asleep and were to lay still. So you could kind of analyze the exposure during the resuspension event itself and then during the period when the occupant is still in bed and they're sleeping and see how much of the particles that they stir up. Um, how many of those that they're exposed to as they're, as they're still. I see. And, and how are you measuring these particles? Uh, we're using uh, just portable optical particle counters, um, tracks and a aerodynamic particle sizer, And these are positioned at different locations around the chamber, Some were near the, the breathing zone of the participant at different mm-hmm. heights. And then we had some in the bulk air of the chamber. So we could kind of look at this proximity effect of the close proximity of the breathing zone to the mattress versus uh, the bulk air of the room, the well-mixed air.
0: Okay, and now it appears to me you broke these down into um, 1 to 2 micrometer, 2 to 3 micrometer, 3 to 5, 5 to 10, and then then 10 to 20. And Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could tell our listeners what the results were. I mean, what, what were your findings on this?
5: Uh, Well, first for the size, uh, these are in this, the the test dust itself had a size range of 1 to 20 microns. Um, So, for example, the thickness of our hair is about 80 microns. Uh, So, these are very small particles. Um, Particles in this 1 to 10 micron range are typically associated with different allergens or bacteria um, and so forth. Uh, But what we found is that Basically, these movements and then resuspend these small particles, these very small particles. Um, The the amount of particles that come off or the the resuspension process itself is enhanced as the particle size increases. So a bigger particle uh, forces that act on that particle to kind of detach it from a bedding fiber are greater than for a smaller particle. These bigger particles are more easily resuspended. we just found that these these common movements that everybody does in bed generate enough force to get these particles to come off. And the process we, we try to look at this a little bit more fundamentally to see what was causing this resuspension. And we think it's a combination of uh, kind of the airflow that is generated across the surface of the bed sheets or the mattress. Um, in this case, these. Bed sheets that we have on our mattresses are porous, so air can flow through the, the, bedded, the bed sheet itself. Um, so you have these kind of complex uh, airflow regimes over the, the bedding surface. And then, of course, you're in direct contact with the surface, so there's this abrasion that may occur. Uh, we found that the mattress uh, vibrations are quite strong when you move in bed, so you generate very strong. Uh, vibrational forces, and this may aid in this resuspension process. Um, yeah.
0: So these larger, when you say the larger particles, were resuspended more so than the smaller? Are talking 10 to 20 micron, or the 5 to 10, or can you clarify on that a little bit
5: more? Oh uh, yeah, so that in, in general, from 1 to 20 microns of resuspension increased with size, so the particle's 10 to 20 microns uh, or more easily resuspended than the particles that say 1 to 2 uh, microns. And and so this was was this was this something
0: you expected to see, or was this something that um, you know kind of surprised you?
5: Uh, no, I think this was expected. Um, I think everything that's been done related to this particle resuspension in indoor environments has shown that, and a fundamental resuspension studies have shown that larger particles more easily resuspend. Uh, Another important element of this particle size is the exposure. These large particles are kind of like bowling balls in the aerosol world. They may come off the surface, but they will settle back down through gravitational forces quite quickly. Whereas the small particles around one micron can stay airborne for much longer. So size affects the resuspension process. It also affects how long the particles stay airborne, and and thus how long you would be exposed to it. So we found that although the small particles are not easily as easily resuspended, your exposure to them would be greater because when you're just laying still in bed, uh, kind of the, the the decay of these particles is much slower. So those big particles come off easier, but then they quickly go back down to the mattress surface, whereas the small particles stay in here, and then prolong your period of exposure
0: and what is the you know what can indoor environmental contractors or, or consultants learn from this you know that would help them do a better job re- either evaluating or advising people or or with the respect to the contractors in in cleaning bedding etc uh
5: well i think the best thing to do is get rid of the dust so Routine cleaning and vacuuming would be the best thing. Um, But, of course, I think resuspension is something that will always occur to some extent. Immediately after you clean, particles will begin to deposit back onto the the surface, whether it's a mattress or your flooring. Um, Once you get in the bed, then you start shedding skin. If you have your pet in your bed, of course, they'll bring more particles. So it's something that will probably always happen to some extent. And I think... We haven't really looked at what is the health outcome, but some extent suspension will always be there and, and is important. Um, so I think controlling the dust, but then of course when the particles are airborne, you can control that as well using yeah. uh, portable air cleaning, as Dr. Corsi can talk about with their study on the personal air cleaners. Um, so you can control what's or remove these particles once they become airborne with effective control strategies. And in general... Um, good ventilation for the bedroom, whether it's natural ventilation or mechanical ventilation, with a good indox filter, uh, that would help as well.
4: Yeah, can, I, can I add something, Joe, to what no, Brandon I was just going to ask
5: that you do that. Please do. Um, you know, we, we
4: tend to focus on particles being in beds and mattress systems, if you will, as being uh, bacteria from shed skin, shed skin flakes, that type of thing, uh, dust mite droppings. But we also have to remember that a lot of mattresses have flame retardants in them uh, and other chemicals which um, can become airborne in the gas phase, but they don't like to stay in air, and so they attach to things. And all these particles which we deposit in mattresses or that get deposited in mattresses can actually become contaminated with flame retardants. And so when those particles become airborne, as Brandon's talking about, when people move in their sleep... People are not just being exposed to, you know, insect dunga and uh, dust mites, droppings and, uh, you know, sh- shed skin flakes. But those particles may also have associated with them concentrated flame retardants. So we not only have sort of the biological aspect of the particles, allergens and that type of thing, but they may also be carrying with them um, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, chemicals that there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence coming out about, uh, that that cause reproductive problems, developmental problems in children, and that type of thing. So, it's it's both an allergen problem, but also a chemical problem. When when we talked about exposure to particles.
0: Well, and I don't know which other paper it was, but there was another one where you were looking at gaseous pollutants that that were in bedding and etc. And and you mentioned the flame returns. What other types of gaseous pollutants would we be uh, concerned about with respect to in our bedding?
4: Yeah. So, Brandon, do you want to talk about your studies in that area?
5: Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, So, in addition to all this dust resuspension, we also looked at uh, emissions from crib mattresses. Um, In this case, we focused on volatile organic compounds. Uh, This work was another study that I did here in Finland. Uh, This was with uh, the VTT Technical Research Center of Finland and Dr. Helena Jarnstrom's group, they do a lot of this routine emissions testing for building materials, consumer products. Um, they have an emissions label here, somewhat similar to the Green Guard label in the US. Um, but what we, what we did is tested a, a collection of new and used crib mattresses. I uh, broke what, what types of VOCs are off-gassing and how much are coming off these mattresses. Um, these used mattresses I collected around Austin. Uh, they're a varying age of several years old to, more than 10 years old, and what we found is that all these mattresses emit VOCs to some extent. Uh,
3: new the new
5: mattresses emit much more than the used mattresses. So, if you buy a fresh mattress from the store, uh, the, emissions, the emissions can be quite high. And, and what we recommend is that you remove the kind of the plastic wrapping that's used in the packaging from these mattresses and let them off-gas or air out uh, before you uh, use it with your baby. Uh, we also found that uh, temperature impacts the amount of these chemicals that are off-gassing from the mattress, and this is quite important because uh, as a baby sleeps or as we sleep, we heat up the mattress and the bedding, and these chemicals are sensitive to this temperature increase, and emissions generally increase the temperature. Or if you use um, a, uh, a heating blanket, right? Yeah, If you have, of course, if you have a heating blanket on top of you, that might also be important, um, and then we also found that uh, the VOCs that the infant is exposed to can be quite high if you compare it to kind of the bulk air or the well-mixed air in the bedroom. It's about double, so they're very close and in intimate contact with the bedding does uh, kind of increase their exposures to the VOCs that are off-gassing from the mattress. All right. Excellent, excellent. Well, gentlemen, I've got to take a quick break here, and then uh, we'll
0: talk a little bit more with the two guests we have. We're going to bring a third one. We've got Dr. Richard Corsi. We've got Brandon Bohr calling in from Helsinki. And then uh, what we've got to do, gentlemen, is uh, stop for 90 seconds, thank our sponsors, and then I'm going to bring Dr. Eva King in. We're going to have a little IAQA ASHRAE update, and then bring her into the conversation. Great.
5: Okay,
0: sounds good. All right, Jeff.
2: Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
1: And thanks to our advertisers, Grey Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at
2: wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors.
1: John Donn Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Johndon,
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, com and com.
1: We'd like to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors... IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals
2: and consumers. Subscription
1: information is available at
2: IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: All right. Uh let's get uh let's get Doctor Eva King on the line here. This is Radio Joe Hughes, we're back. I'm a little I'm a little uh out of control here. I don't have my, my chat room up in front of me. If there were any questions, Jess, you're gonna have to let me know. I think I'm back in now. But um we wanna do a little IAQA ashray update. Do we have Doctor King on the line?
6: You sure do. Hello, Joe. Uh,
0: good. Always good to hear your voice and get a female voice in here and but people hear something that's about as grating as me. Um, good to have you. And what's new with the Indoor Air Quality Association and the ASHRAE merger? I still, I still. every time I say that, I just can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's just something that I start to shake myself once in a while. And go, Whoa, this is big news.
6: Big news indeed. Well, thanks so much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to update your listeners on the progress. What I can tell you is that lots has happened since uh, the IAQA and ASHRAE presidents, uh, Ken Rawhauser and Tom Phoenix, uh, came on your show a couple of weeks ago. I guess it was uh, in late August, right? Uh, Yes. Yeah, so we have the transition team, and that consists of of volunteer leaders of both organizations as well as uh, the ASHRAE staff leadership. And we the team we've been getting together for a conference call every Tuesday morning at eight AM and uh we are working through the logistical and strategic details of this of this whole adventure. And um, I can tell you this is an exciting process. Um there's lots going on and there's lots of work to be done. But uh every week uh we just continue painting another piece of the big picture, um, and we're getting a bigger view of just just how great the opportunities for membership of both IAQA and ASHRAE really are.
0: Absolutely. Now, can you tell us a little more about, like, for instance, um, with what's gonna, do you have any idea what's going on with all the chapters yet?
6: Sure, sure. So... Um chapters um actually the, so since since uh, let me let me maybe say start out by saying that um, both uh, boards of directors have met over the last few weeks so um, and and that has that has uh, started more processes um, and we can work on more things so um, the IAQA board of directors had their face to face board meeting at the new headquarters in Atlanta, and um, maybe we can uh, use that to uh, to remind people that we have indeed moved. So the uh, new IAQA headquarter is at 1791 Tilly Circle Northeast in Atlanta. So uh, we are in Atlanta now, and we, we, send, um, we send reminders out through email and all that. But um, please, um, you, can, you can find that at the IAQA website. That's www.iaqa.org. So um, just, just go there and check it out and um, make sure that you have our, have our new contact details.
0: There's a new phone number too, right?
6: Yes, there is a new phone number indeed. So, uh, if you uh, anybody who wants to write this down, so the new phone number is four one zero three. So, um, oh. just um, right. no, just and you can you can find all that information if you if you go on the uh, contact us tab on the IAQA website. So
3: and that's, now well, that's
6: where you can get all that information.
0: Going back to the chapters for a minute, they're, they're still separate, or some thinking about joining forces. I know at, at one point I had talked to someone that said you were having some kind of joint meetings, at least, or um, you know, inviting each other to to your conference. And I know the IAQA board has been going out and um, actually, you know, jumping into the meetings and maybe even doing some presentations. Is that accurate?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, since August, there's been really a concerted effort in introducing the IAQA as well as the ASHRAE aft- 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 chapters to each other. Um, so staff has been distributing the contact details for regional ca- chapter leadership, both to the IAQA and ASHRAE aft- aft- chapters. And uh, we've been strongly encouraging chapters to use uh, the opportunity to connect with-, with the other chapters in their area. And um, there's been invitations, uh, and invite each other to chapter events, make introductions. Actually, most uh, of the IAQA board members have already visited Ashray as well as IAQA chapters, and given presentations about the merger. Um, there, you know, we 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 introduce the organizations to each other because not everybody, not not all ASHRAE members know what IAQA is all about, and vice versa. Um, so we we use that opportunity to introduce each other and uh, encourage collaboration. So. Um, The the Trenton chapter, for example, um, they've had a workshop very early on in this process, and uh, they've invited the regional ASHRAE members to join in and have had very good results, even though um, that was very short notice at the time. Um, I I personally, I was invited to the uh, ASHRAE Region 3 chapter regional conference in Richmond, (laughs) here in Virginia in late August, and... (laughs) I had a wonderful time there. I mean, I was welcomed with open arms. Lovely people, and was was met with so much enthusiasm about the opportunities. Um, and it's just very clear that that uh, this will open so many opportunities for for both our organizations moving closer together.
0: Well, I we look forward to talking to you more about that. I want to I want to get back to to our interview, and, and while I've still got you. Um, I hope you were able to hear the first half. Did, did you have any questions or comments that you wanted to add when we as we get uh, Dr. Corsi and Brandon back on the line here?
6: Questions for for Dr. Corsi and Brandon? Or or,
0: or comments? I mean, I don't know if you got to hear the first half. Oh yeah, either.
6: absolutely. Absolutely. That's uh that's that's fascinating research. I was wondering if um Brandon, if, if he's been, if he's aware of the work that, uh, Yun Tovi has been doing, uh, recently, they, he's a, a professor in, in, uh, at the yeah. University of Sydney, and they've been uh, yeah. looking at, uh, personal exposures to dust mite, aller- error allergens during the day, which is, with, um, very interesting study looking at, uh, you know, they, they used they use nasal samplers to, to mm. monitor exposures throughout the day and came up with some very interesting results. So I was wondering if you had any comments on that.
5: Uh, yes. Uh, actually, we just had a workshop at the Indoor Air Conference in Hong Kong uh, with myself, Dr. Korsi, and uh, Yuan Tovey, and a few others. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think, And Yuan actually presented some of the research he had with some sort of mechanical apparatus to compress the the pillow, to look at the particles that are generated either from the the stuffing of the pillow itself or or other particles deposited. Um, So, yeah, we had a a very nice workshop with him, and um, he discussed a lot about this nocturnal uh, dust mite exposure, and I think there's some research to suggest that it actually might be lower than what people originally thought. A lot of exposures to dust mites may occur during the day and not at night. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the things he discussed. Uh, Another thing was this whole—I guess you can call it—the hygiene hypothesis. And I'm sure you know quite a bit about this, but that kind of elevated exposures early on in life to certain microbes and allergens can be uh, actually beneficial or preventive for uh, asthma and other respiratory diseases. So I don't know. in that case, then resuspension of all this dust could be, in in some ways, a good thing. Uh, you
6: <laughs> know. Not, not sure about whether it could be a good thing, particularly the other, uh, you know, the, the the other exposures that are associated with it, um, particularly the chemical exposure there. I would, I would certainly um, certainly want to try to limit exposure there as much as possible. What about exposure?
0: Go ahead. I'm sorry. Dr. course, you had to think you were trying to get in. Oh,
4: I was just going to say that I felt like the workshop that Brandon mentioned that Ewan was involved with, uh, as well as Brandon and a couple of others in Hong Kong was one of the best workshops at the Indoor Air 2014 meeting, and Brandon was really instrumental in pulling that workshop together with a couple of other colleagues, uh, other Ph.D. students around the world. So it was a really, really great success, and it it was nice to pull Ewan in and getting sort of a health perspective in addition to the the sort of understanding of sources and fate. It was one of those workshops that had all the right people in it, and I I thought it was a great success.
0: Well, let me throw one out for any of you. Um... With respect to the hygiene, hypothesis, and dust mite uh, exposure to dust mite allergen, I get I don't know I don't know anything about it, but I I have the impression that you know being exposed to dust mite allergen early in life it doesn't seem like it would be a good thing. It doesn't seem like that would be one area where you would build up some kind of tolerance or resistance. But maybe I'm wrong. Either Brandon, no. you guys.
6: No, the, the hygiene I bought is is much more directed towards towards microbial
0: extractors. Yeah.
6: Um, okay. Allergens don't really come come into that.
0: Okay, and not uh, okay. That's good. I'm glad I asked because um, you know I, I know that um, you know that's something important for for people to understand. And the same, and I think that's why Dr. Corsi, you interjected that you know, or or somebody I can't remember who that oh, um, Dr. King that. With respect to the uh, gaseous and the chemical exposures, well, I don't know of anyone thinking there's a hygiene hypothesis for that. So uh, this is important stuff we're looking at. All right, let's 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 move on a little bit more. I want to get to this other study. There was one. Oh, you know what? Before I do that, Dr. Corsi, you, you uh, when Brandon was talking about resuspension of these large particles, and then one of the two of you mentioned something about the, the personal... Of the room air cleaners, yeah. and then I know before the show we had talked a little bit about some study you just did at the beginning of the show on these room size air cleaners, and and yeah. I'm wondering if you could add, um, is that something that maybe we'd look at a little
5: differently? Now?
4: Yeah, I think that um, you know we've we've done a whole series of tests with um, whole room air purifiers and portable air cleaners that are intended to purify the air in a room to remove particles from air in a room. We've also tested a commercial unit that's intended to be placed on a nightstand next to a bed that... um, Actually, is a really good filtration system that removes particles and then sort of blows the clean air across the face of people as they're sleeping, right across the, the head zone. And we've uh, tested essentially the effectiveness of both of those kinds of devices for reducing exposures to particles when you're sleeping. And we, we use thermal mannequins for that, so they were not moving, but they were breathing and they were heated uh, to body temperature. So that affects the fluid mechanics, the airflow Nature of the airflow around the bed, and what we found is that both of them can be very effective if you have the right uh, air, you know, portable air purifier or personal air purifier for dramatically reducing exposure to particles over a wide spectrum of particle sizes. The little uh, nightstand portable air purifier that we tested uh, was actually more effective uh, than the whole room air purifier and uses a lot less energy. Um, it's it's less effective at sort of removing particles in the whole room, but it's more effective at uh we found it to be more effective at removing particles in the breathing zone while sleeping. So you know there are things people can do to to deal with the issues that Brandon is studying uh from sort of an engineering control standpoint. That's interesting. I'm sorry. I was going to say, when I say uh, significant reductions, we're talking about an order of magnitude. So, you know, 90% reduction in the amount of particles you inhale uh, as the particles become airborne during the sleep events.
0: Interesting.
3: What about um, what about
0: noise with respect to the one on the on the bed stand there? Did you find that was, um, do you even measure the, the amount of noise coming off of these?
4: Um We actually did, another one of my colleagues did uh Tilla nova did that during this study um The noise levels associated with this the personal air purifier are considerably less than um than the whole room uh air portable air cleaner you know to be effective a whole room portable air cleaner needs to move a lot of air uh, and to move a lot of and to move a lot of air, you generally make noise um so the less air you move in these little nightstand devices they they move a fair amount of air, but they don 't move as much air as the as the portable devices. I think one of the issues is, uh, I actually used this, I brought it home one night and I used it uh, on, on my nightstand. And, um, you know, to to remove uh, enough particles from the air to get to sort of 90% reduction of particles, you have to have uh, in, your, in your breathing zone, because we were measuring particles in the breathing zone with and without the device on. Um, you know, the device has to be blowing air across your face. And I found that very nice and relaxing. Uh, my wife didn't like the air blowing across her head, so that's a personal choice, I guess, in terms of just airflow over your, over your uh, inhalation region, your, your breathing zone.
0: I see. And then Brandon, you had mentioned ventilation, um, and I—I'm in an airport, guys. I don't know, if, uh, Dr. Coursey, I think you got on a little late. I got stuck in Cleveland here, so I'm, I'm catching bits and pieces, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting—I'm getting most of it here. And you'd mentioned ventilation somewhere, Brandon. I'm curious—did you have ventilation in? What, what type of ventilation setup did you have in your chamber test?
5: Uh, so we had. Uh... I guess it would be a displacement ventilation. There was a diffuser uh, mounted near the floor, and all this air was filtered with a HEPA filter. Um, We looked at different ventilation rates, or air exchange rates, um, from around one air change per hour to up around seven air changes per hour. And the ventilation doesn't impact this resuspension process, but it does impact the um, exposure. And this is primarily because of the kind of the loss rate of particles increases and you increase the ventilation rate. So we did find that a high ventilation rate around 7 for this for this uh, chamber that we studied um, did reduce exposure compared to the ventilation rate around 1. So it does have an impact on exposure, but um, does not impact the resuspension process itself.
0: And how much of a, an impact on exposure did it have at 7? That's pretty
5: high, though. I guess that's... yeah, that's quite high, probably much higher than what you'd find in a typical bedroom. Um, But the way we quantified exposure in this case was through an intake fraction, and an intake fraction tells you the the fraction of of a pollutant that's released from the source, how much of that is actually inhaled. So for this case, the intake fraction, um, I guess, was almost... Order of magnitude higher for the for that low air exchange rate, or sorry, that's correct. the, the intake fraction, yeah, the intake fraction was about an order of magnitude higher for the low air exchange rate compared to the high air exchange rate. So you inhale a much greater fraction of the particles that are released in the mattress um, at these lower air exchanges than you do at the higher air exchanges. Um, Interesting. Interesting.
0: All right, let me, is there anything anybody wanted to add on that one before I move over? I want to talk a little bit about one other study you've done. Okay, we're going to move on. I want to quickly ask you a little bit about this study on, let me see, it was, uh, I want to make sure I say it right here. It, It had to do with how bedding is arranged with respect to like pillows and blankets and how, I think the first thing is how that affects particle resuspension. Can you comment on that, Brandon?
5: Oh, yeah. So I guess this whole mattress resuspension study we did first looking at the mattress itself with no uh, pillows or blankets. Then we did another separate study looking at um, different arrangements of pillows and different types of blankets, so very light blankets, very thick blankets.
2: And basically
5: what we did find is that resuspension... Uh, it does occur from the pillow from the blanket um, so for example the kind of the impact of the head on the pillow is resuspending these particles in a similar manner as our body movements across the mattress um, the resuspension from the pillow um, from the blanket and the mattress were quite similar um, and you can uh, think that different types of particles may be associated with each of these items for example the blanket may accumulate particles uh, generate elsewhere in the home. The mattress may have different types of particles. Um, One interesting finding from the study was that when we um, deposited particles onto the the pillow itself and then wrapped it in a pillow cover, the particles are easily transported through the pillow cover to the breathing zone. Mm -hmm. So for like a typical pillow cover, if a third count of several hundred... Uh, it does not really act as a strong barrier to the transport of these particles from the pillow. Um, so that was quite interesting. Hmm.
0: And what, uh, let me let me ask, what kind of uh, advice then you would give? You know, and it doesn't matter whether it was this particular study we're talking about or any others. The the, the people that are going. Uh, consulting and, you know, they're trying to give people advice. What, what kind of advice? Well, let's go with the bedding arrangement. What kind of advice, then, based on what you studied, would you give people?
5: Well, I think you must clean the pillow and the, the, the bedding, uh, including the blankets. So the pillow, I think, sometimes may be more difficult to clean. Um, you can try to vacuum it, as you would the mattress itself. Um, for some pillows, you can actually wash the pillow. And that might be a good strategy, although I really don't know how much that would affect the kind of the allergen and microbial content of uh, the dust and what's originating in the pillow. Um, I think frequent cleaning of the pillow cover is an easy strategy. Um, considering how close your head is, and how close your breathing zone is to the pillow, um, that might be even more important than the entire mattress. And I think the comforter, That something that's very heavy may be difficult to clean Um, it might be good to clean that more often because it's a large horizontal surface in the home and it's a great place for particles to deposit and accumulate over time Um, so when you're moving beneath that large comforter particles are resuspending and and you're being exposed to those particles Yeah, I can can... Uh,
4: go ahead Joe I'm sorry
0: well i I was going to say, I don't know whether you said it just now. Like I said, I had a little trouble with the, the planes in the background. But somewhere I remember hearing that um, having that large, the blanket, the, the big comforter on there, really didn't change how much particulate actually got into the mattress. Is that accurate or is that something I, I misread or misunderstood?
5: Oh, That's true. So for one arrangement, we had particles deposited on the mattress and then had a clean blanket on top. But in that case, the clean blanket did not really act as a barrier to the transport of the particles that resuspend from the underlying mattress. Okay. Okay. And, Dr. Corsi, I, don't, I think you
0: might have to run, so I just want to make sure if you do that I get, get a last word from you.
4: Yeah, so I, I wanted to also add for gaseous pollutants, not particles, um, we've done research on bedding and the effects of bedding on exposure to gases that come out of the... The bedding system or the mattress system. And what we found in, in this particular case, using thermal breathing mannequins, we actually collect air samples in the artificial lungs of the, of the, of the mannequins themselves that are breathing. Um, is what we found is if you pull the blankets over your head when you're sleeping, your exposure to the gases that come out of the mattress are magnified by a factor of about 20 to 30 relative to if the blanket is at your neck level or below on your torso. So the gases that come out of the, m- the mattress, because of the way that the body heats the air underneath the, underneath the blankets, the air tends to creep along your body right up to your head, which is underneath the blanket. So you inhale a large amount of stuff that comes out of your, comes out of your mattress. And you're also inhaling, we found up to 60% Of the air that you breathe when you pull the blankets over your head is your own breath that's accumulated underneath the blankets. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're not, you know, sort of not breathing fresh air by the end of the night. You're breathing a lot of your own breath, basically. Um, So those were interesting studies, and and that gets to, you know, if you're a parent um, and you want to reduce your children's exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals or chemicals that can affect development of children, make sure that the blankets are not pulled up over their head. Make sure there's no monsters under the bed, I guess, and the children are afraid. Um, I, I do have to run. I wanted to say one last thing, Joe, and I know that at Indoor Air 2011, we spoke afterwards And I recall you saying really wonderful things about all of the students at the conference. Uh, and I really appreciate the fact that you're following that up now and having students like Brandon on board and, and giving students an opportunity to talk about their research. That means a lot to me. Um, and I just, I just really appreciate it. People like Brandon are, you know, the future of research in this field. And I think it's really good for our students to connect with practitioners. And, and you know how much I care about sort of the research practice translation. So I really, really appreciate it.
0: Well, you're probably welcome. We certainly appreciate you uh, helping us do this. It's been great. Um, And then I know you've got to run. Let me ask uh, Dr. King, anything you wanted to add before we go?
6: Well, first of all, thank you for, for giving me the chance to say something here about a merger. But um, I really want to encourage um, all our members, um, please don't hold back with your input and feedback and be active in your chapters. Um, connect with your local ASHRAE and uh, Asherian IAQA chapter, meet new people, and let's really use this opportunity to strengthen the community and build relationships. And we'll be, um, we'll be given more updates um, as we move through the process. Um, there's lots more to come. And um, I understand we're going to have a have a monthly update with one of the transition team members coming on. And um, thank you very much for that opportunity. This is great.
0: Well, we'd love to do that, and I want to do it. And next month, I want to talk more about standards, um, ISO and ASHRAE standards, and what will be happening with that. So, yep. I appreciate you joining us, and definitely have to get, get you back next week, uh, Brandon. Before we go. Um, I was thinking about this whole thing with the blankets and, you know, how you know that was a a fascinating statistic that Dr. Corsi, um, you know, result, I guess, uh, with respect to having the blankets over your head. It made me think about this, and I don't know if there's been research on it or not, but, you know, a lot of times in a bedroom, we try and keep it cooler uh, or we, we leave it cooler and then we use the blankets because, you know, you save a little energy and some people like to sleep in a cooler room and I guess even more importantly with the infants, maybe it's better uh, exposure-wise to keep the room a little warmer so that they're not pulling those blankets up over their heads. Have you seen anything on that?
5: Uh, no, not specifically relating to exposure. Um, there's like thermal comfort studies related to the ambient bedroom temperature. Uh, but, of course, this whole the temperature difference between... Like the bulk air and the air around your body will influence the kind of this buoyant thermal plume that develops, and this does impact kind of the transport of pollutants from a source to the breathing zone. Um, so that might be something that's a factor. Uh, for example, in the study that Dr. Corsi mentioned that uh, Yellow and Lavarge had done, um, looking at these gaseous pollutants, um, the thermal plume may actually... Um, kind of dilute concentrations in the breathing zone because it entrains fresh air from exterior to the bed. But at the same time, it, it, it's like a transport mechanism that brings pollutants upwards, vertically upwards, to the breathing zone. So this is something that may be influenced by the temperature differences in a room and airflow distribution. You well, know, the more we learn, the more we need to
0: learn. I mean it's just amazing that every time you, you 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 know you learn something it makes you think, okay, well what about this, what about that? That's why it's great having young folks like you out there doing this type of research and, and I, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh I know it's evening in, in uh Finland there and uh hopefully I will meet you here and back in the States someday. Um I just wanna say thanks for joining
5: us. Well yeah thanks a lot for having me and uh finding finding out about our research on the the mattress bus. And it's really cool to to be able to talk about it with you and your listeners. And and hopefully they found something useful from this research. And, and, yeah, thanks Uh a lot for having me. I'm sure they did. And
0: hopefully we'll get you back in a future show to talk about some other research you're working on. Yeah, of course. Great. Well, hey, this is Radio Joe Hughes from the... Very busy and noisy Cleveland Airport saying thank you to our guest today, Dr. Richard Corsi, Brandon Bohr, both from the University of Texas-Austin Indoor Air Program. Great stuff. Of course, thank you, Dr. Eva King, for joining us. Always great to have Eva join us here on the show. Um, of course, most important, oh, Jess, hey. Good job back there in the studio, although I think I lost you there for a minute, but I don't know. I'm starting to get confused with all the noise around here, but I think we pulled it off, Jess. Thank you so much. And uh, I will catch up with you after the show. Most importantly, nice group of uh, live listeners today. Thank you all for being here next week. The Z-Man and I are both going to be at meetings at the uh, IICRC and IICRCA meetings, so what we're going to do is we're going to pick out one of our favorite shows and have a flashback Friday next week. So we'll see you uh, or or talk to you again here live two weeks from today for the next episode of IAQ radio.